There's probably times in your Christian walk where you felt very close to God, but there may have been times in your Christian walk, and that might even be today, when you know He's there, you know He's every bit as powerful as He always has been, but you don't feel as close to Him as you did at some other time. Now, one of the things that can cause us to feel like God has departed or like God is a million miles away is when He doesn't do what we expect Him to. One of the things that can make us think that God has left the building is when he doesn't do the very things that we think we desperately need. When he doesn't do what we expect that he can do, and more importantly, what he should do based on the way we see reality. When that doesn't happen, when he doesn't fulfill our plans, we get upset and we say, where are you? When God acts in a way that differs from our desires, when he acts in a way that differs from our plans, it can feel like a rift has opened between him and us. When he doesn't follow our our script, so to speak, We might wonder, why has your disposition changed? Why has your disposition changed to me this day? Why, if I'm your child, are my plans and yours so out of sync in this circumstance or in this host of circumstances? Have you ever felt out of sync with God? Do you feel out of sync with Him today? Well, it's just a theory, just a guess, but... Feeling out of sync with God, feeling detached from God, feeling like He is not present as He once was in our lives, it often coincides with those moments when we have an expectation of how He should act that it doesn't seem like He's fulfilling. At 1 Kings 18, this is the case. At 1 Kings 18, which we heard earlier this morning, the prophet Elijah had just seen a manifestation of God's power that dwarfed manifestations of God's power that most people see in the entire lifetime. And because of what he'd seen in 1 Kings 18, Elijah doesn't understand what happens in 1 Kings 19. Because of what he'd seen in 1 Kings 18, he probably had this heightened expectation of just what God was going to do next. Because after all, look what he did on Mount Carmel. Look how the power of God came down in, in a fiery blast upon the altar. Look how the people fell down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah saw this with his own eyes and he rightfully concluded that, wow, God is in charge. God is, is every bit as able to fulfill all the prayers as I've always thought he had. Elijah's faith was validated a thousand times fold via what he saw. And so he expected that that train would just keep on rolling. After all, why not? He expected that this was the seed, this was the spark that revival and reformation were immediately going to follow. For after all, look what God did. Now, would that have been a reasonable expectation based on what Elijah saw, the power of God on Mount Carmel? Yeah, that's probably the expectation any of us would have had. However, God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, are His ways above our ways and His thoughts above our thoughts. And because of that... You can't outthink and you can't outguess what God is going to do next. Now, revival and reformation was around the corner, so to speak. But it wasn't the very next step. It would come in time, but it was not imminent. Rather, the next step following the events of Mount Carmel was that Elijah, who had been God's man, God's tool, God's instrument, God's prophet on Mount Carmel, was now going to be chased and harried and persecuted. He was now going to be pursued by assassins sent by Queen Jezebel. In other words, although things have gone just wonderfully, marvelously on Mount Carmel, the very next day, a messenger is sent by Jezebel to Elijah saying, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be just as dead as all the prophets of mine that you slaughtered the day previous. So Elijah hears this message. This message tells him he's a dead man, dead man walking. And so he feels compelled by his circumstances to run. We alluded to this a little bit earlier, but if you felt like your life is on a yo-yo, a yo-yo string. There's great highs, 
and the great lows. In 24 hours, Elijah had experienced some serious highs and some serious lows. One minute, everything was going just perfectly. His job as a prophet had found its high point, and he thought things were only going to get better. And the next minute, life seemed to be falling apart. And when things fell apart, especially coming on the heels of such a victory, this hurt Elijah. It confused Elijah. Frustrated Elijah. He knew God was no less good, and God was no less loving, and God was no less powerful than he was the day previous. So he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand how a good and a loving and a powerful God that had, had shown and manifested that power so greatly the day previous would allow such hideous circumstances to befall him as being chased by the minions, the assassins of Queen Jezebel back into the very wilderness that he'd spent so many years previous. That hurt Elijah. He was frustrated. God's plan and his plan seemed to be going in different directions. Can you relate to that sort of frustration? Can you relate to asking, God, what in the world are you doing in my life? I know you're on the throne. I know you're good and loving. Why does this happen? Why do I have this issue going on in my life? With that said, let's consider Elijah's prayer. Elijah's prayer to God in this moment, this hour of frustration and fear. And then let's consider God's gracious and merciful response. If you would, let's look at verses 1 through 4 once again, and then we'll just kind of work our way through the passage. Okay, verses 1 through 4. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So Ahab goes and tells Jezebel what Elijah has done and how all the prophets have been slaughtered. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, notice she uses the plural here, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, meaning one of these corpses, by tomorrow about this time. And when Elijah saw that, he arose, and he ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, as we noted earlier, the events that had previously taken place on Mount Carmel was so significant that if you were Elijah, you might have expected big changes to take place as a result. Elijah might have expected, for example, a revolution. The people of Israel had just said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. He might have expected a revolution to take place against the wicked king and the wicked queen. At the very least, he might have expected that the king and queen would have been so unnerved by what had happened that they would have been scared, frankly, of messing with the God of Israel or messing with his prophets, of messing with Elijah. Well, King Ahab may have been scared. There's reason to think that he was perhaps startled by all this, but Jezebel was apparently not. See, when Elijah had executed the false prophets, the prophets of Baal and specifically the prophets of Asherah in 1 Kings 18, in a very real sense, these were Jezebel's prophets, particularly the prophets of the god Asherah, whose scripture says would dine at Jezebel's table. And so when Ahab tells Jezebel that Elijah had, had executed all of her uh, prophetic minions, she flies into a rage, flies into a rage, and she vows that Elijah killed within a, within a day's time. Now, what does Elijah do when he hears this? Well, Scripture is going to tell us he ran. The question we should ask is why? God hadn't changed when Elijah was just one guy standing on a mountain against hundreds and hundreds of prophets in a battle royale on Mount Carmel. God hadn't changed overnight. 
Elijah ran. Again, the question is why? Well, we'll get into that in a moment. Verse 3 says, he ran and fled for his life. He not only ran, as we're going to see also in a moment, but he ran and he ran and he ran some more. And he continued running and then he walked a day out in the wilderness. Now, we know that Elijah is not a slouch in the faith department. Elijah was no slouch in the courage department, as we saw again in 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah had stood his ground against hundreds of wicked prophets. In 1 Kings 18, his faith and his courage were on full display. But here, one chapter, one day later, Elijah hears that Jezebel is gunning for him and he runs for his life. This man of faith, this man of virtue, this man who mocked the other prophets, this man who sat under a tree and mocked the prophets of Baal and Asher, this man who stood up against all of them. On this particular day, this next day, he runs for his life when he gets this message that Jezebel is sending assassins to kill him. And not only does he run, but he leaves the kingdom altogether. You have to notice that in the texture. He travels from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Israel. And not only does he go to the southern kingdom of Israel, but he goes to the southernmost part of the kingdom of Judah. Excuse me. And when he gets there, this is a town called Beersheba, on the southernmost part of the kingdom of Judah. He gets to Beersheba. Verse 4 says that he goes even one more day by himself. He goes out into the wilderness. He goes, he lays down under a tree, and he begs for death. Put it mildly, Elijah traveled some significant distance, and the end result was a tree he curled up in under a ball and desired to perish. Given the faith that Elijah is known for, given the sort of faith and courage to demonstrate on Mount Carmel, this is a surprising turn of events. Elijah was probably, amongst all his peers, the last guy that you'd expect to find curled up under a tree. Asking God to just let him die. As a side note, that demonstrates we're all men of flesh and blood. When you open up the pages of Scripture, there are some great and godly men and women in this book, but they're men and women of flesh and blood. We don't worship David, we don't worship Elijah, we don't worship Paul, because they were like us. They're prone to our weaknesses. In any case, Elijah's circumstances compelled him to retreat to this place, in this position, and to beg for death. Now, earlier we noted that when people feel the most estranged or detached from God, it's in those moments, typically, when God has not done, or doesn't seem like he's going to do, what someone thinks that they desperately need. When God doesn't do what we hope or what we expect, that's when we feel most estranged from him. It would be true in, a, in any relationship. In a marriage, it's the same way. When our spouses don't do what we hope or expect that they should, we feel estranged from them. Now, I would submit that that's the primary reason for Elijah's despair. After living in isolation as long as he did and serving God as faithful as he had, he expected God to bring about a different outcome than God did, at least at this moment. And he didn't. Of all the things he didn't expect, he did not expect to be pursued by God's enemies once again. He'd been there. He'd done that. He knew what that was all about, and he hated every moment of that experience. God provided for him. God kept him alive, and he was, he was blessed by that. God encouraged his heart throughout it. But he didn't want to go back to that. And here he'd had this great moment on Mount Carmel. Everything had gone so swimmingly, so marvelously, so wonderfully. And now, the very next day, assassins are driving him away. At least he felt compelled to flee from them. It appears that Elijah's heart was broken. He did not expect this. He did not want this. He did not understand what God was doing in his life. And he could not reconcile his faith in God's power and God's goodness with circumstances that were once again spiraling out of control. 
Can you relate to that? For many of us, this is also the pressure point, even this day. We believe that God is there. We believe that he exists. We believe he's powerful. And so we can't understand why so many things are going so poorly for us. And that can compel us to run from him. It can compel us to, to run from our problems. It can compel us to find the nearest broom tree to climb under just beg for death. The same pressure point that Elijah was under. If it hasn't hit you yet, give it time. But when it does happen, when we're hurting, when we can't make sense of our circumstances, when we're despairing, it's good to know that that is not where God leaves us. God would not leave Elijah crying and begging for death under a tree. That was not the last step for Elijah. If you would, please look at me at verses 5 through 8. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because this journey is too great for you. And so he arose and he ate and he drank and he went with that strength or in that strength for four days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, after praying for death, which we saw in verses 1 through 4, verse 5 says Elijah sleeps under what's called a broom tree. And a broom tree is really not much more than a shrub. It's a shrub. It, might, you know, it only goes up about two feet in, in, in height or so. It's only elevated a few feet off the ground. So it's not like a massive oak he's cuddling up under. It's just a small shrub. But two times during the night, an angel comes to visit him and to encourage him. And to provide for him, provide some food and some water. Now, although we don't know exactly how Elijah interpreted this angelic visit, we do know that it succeeded in its purpose. It succeeded in reviving his spirits and his strength. So that he's able to travel another 40 days to, to Sinai, which is called by a, an ancient name Horeb in this text. In Elijah's darkest hour, when Elijah's crying under a tree, God sent a ministering spirit. God sent an angel. To revive him, to refresh him. You know, when life has grown particularly dark for you, when the ground is just shaking beneath your feet, as you look back at those times when that's happened, has God not sent, has God not sent an encouraging word or some other form of aid into that darkness? See, God is not indifferent when we're crying. He's not indifferent to our hardships. He's not indifferent to our tears. And in our dark hours... He often sends us help, whether it's a friend, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a saint, whether it's a sermon, whether it's an angel from on high, one of the heavenly hosts. He sends us that which we need to take that next step, to get out from under the tree. We may not know what steps two through ten are going to be, but he strengthens us to take that next step and have faith that although the horizon we can see is sometimes two inches in front of our nose, the God of infinite horizons will lead us, will carry us going forward. God was sensitive to what Elijah was going through. God was sensitive to Elijah's distress. He is sensitive to our distress as well. He is intimately concerned when we're crying out when we're hurting. He's not just staring at us, wondering what we're going to do next. He is actively aiding, actively assisting. Even right now, what is the sun doing in heaven this very moment? 
sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints, whispering into the ears of the Father the needs of a Tom, a Harvey, of an Anna, of a Jason. God is not indifferent. With that said, let's look at now verses 9 through 14. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They tore down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, only me. And they seek my life. And God said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a small, still voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have broken your covenant. They tore down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, I alone am left. And now they seek my life. Now, a number of weeks have gone by since Elijah had first run from Jezebel. And, and every day, Elijah must ask God some variation of this question. Why me? Why is this happening? What is your plan? Regardless of what Elijah's questions may have been, God's answer didn't come right away. I want you to notice that. God didn't come to Elijah on day one or day two or day three or day four. Now, it's not to say God wasn't there. It's not to say God wasn't present. It's not to say God wasn't ministering to Elijah. But any answer to the questions that Elijah had didn't come the moment that the hurt came. Be sensitive to that. You might be going through something. You might be wondering what the deal is. Why is this happening? What's going on? Well, you may not find out today or tomorrow or the next day. Elijah found out, and certainly now he knows even more. But God's answers to whatever Elijah's questions may have been throughout all these days of this journey, God's answers didn't come right away. Sometimes God allows situations to come to a head, or he'll wait until we expend all of our rebellion or our, our upset energy before he responds. Whatever the case is, in verse 9, the word of the Lord finally comes to Elijah asking the simple question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, like any question that God asks of man, God knows the answer before he asks it. God knew the answer to this question. But asking the question was a way of drawing out of Elijah his motivations. God asking Elijah a question was a way of drawing out from Elijah what his purpose was, what he was doing, why he was there. Now, when Elijah had first run, when he first run from Jezebel and her assassins, you notice there was no sign in that text in verses 1 through 4 that Elijah stopped, that he heard the messenger, that he heard that he was doomed, and that he stopped and prayed. There was no sign of that in the text. Furthermore, there was no sign that God told him to run at that point. In no way, in all these verses, does Scripture ever validate Elijah's decision to run. In no way does Scripture validate Elijah's decision to flee. Instead, Elijah simply heard that he was in danger and he hit the bricks. And when God asked Elijah in these verses in 9 through 14, what is he doing here? 
Elijah, what are you doing here? This seems to suggest that running away was never God's intent for Elijah. Now, how many wills are there in God? Two wills. There's God's will of decree and God's will of precept. His will of decree is the decree by which he fast forms the end from the beginning. His will of decree is his, his imminent counsel and purposes. He declares and fashions and forms our days before we ever walk. He decrees all things. His will of decree you cannot violate. No matter how powerful is Satan, no matter how powerful his adversary may be, he can never once cause God's decree to be upended. If that's true, then we can't either. We cannot in any way cause God's will of decree to be unrooted or changed. Now, God's will of precept is the will by which he prescribes certain behaviors to us. When he tells us don't sin. Now, we violate that all the time when we do sin. God tells us all manner of things in his will of precept, in his prescriptive will to us that we do violate, that we do turn from. It seems here on some level that the question geared towards Elijah was that Elijah had done something, had undertaken an action that really wasn't God's prescriptive will to Elijah. Now, Elijah had not violated God's will of decree, by which God plans in from the beginning, but at the same time, he had done something here that perhaps he shouldn't have. And God had asked him twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? Why did you run? You know, if God had preserved Elijah's life and validated Elijah's faith on Mount Carmel, why did Elijah doubt that God would continue or would not continue to, to validate and protect Elijah, to validate his faith the, the next day. Why is the Elijah of 1 Kings 19 different from one of 1 Kings 18 in terms of his expectations of the, his God? What are you doing here, Elijah? You know who I am. You saw what I did. You get a message from some pagan queen and you head for the hills? What are you doing here, Elijah? But that said, Elijah responds twice in verses 9 through 14 by saying he ran out of fear, but he also ran out of frustration. It wasn't just the fear that his life was in danger, although I'm sure that he, he was concerned there. But he was also just frustrated. Despite all his efforts, Israel looked like it was going to be just as wicked and rebellious as it was before. When Elijah looked out and saw the ripple effect of what had happened in First Kings 18 was actually going to do going forward, he was frustrated. It just wasn't going to have the effect that he desired it to have. Elijah feels like a failure. He feels like he has not been any more successful than the prophets that preceded him. The fathers, the, the, the prophets, those who preceded Elijah, he has done no more than, than they. And there in the grave, he might as well go there too. People are just as rebellious as they've always been. Why bother? Take me home. Well, to that, God stops him. It tells Elijah to go out and look upon the mountain. And then on, on what we believe is the same mountain that God once scorched with fire on the day of Moses, on the same mountain that all of Israel had trembled to touch in Moses' day, God demonstrates his power once again. He brings forth a great wind, a great earthquake, and a great fire. But as furious, as deadly as these manifestations are, the wind is breaking rocks apart. As tremendous as the manifestations of God's power are in this moment. The ground is shaking. Rocks are being shattered by the wind. There's a great flame upon the mountain. These things do not touch. They do not harm God's prophet. And then from out of the silence, we have this great contrast where the one moment we see this great manifestation of God's strength and God's power. And then a still, small voice, a whisper. 
whisper comes to Elijah's ears. Demonstrates this God of strength who can raise up mountains and break them down. It's also the God of, of intimate concern for hurting hearts. A whisper is that which he approached Elijah with. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, you've seen my power. You've seen my, my strength. You've seen how I've provided for you. I've provided for my people. Elijah, with all that in mind, what are you doing here? Why, are you, why were you crying under a, a, a tree? You're hiding in a cave. God demonstrated to Elijah in a sensible way his great power. Jezebel could send assassins armed with swords. God could bring mountains down upon these assassins should they come against his, his own. God had the ability to preserve and protect Elijah. He could protect him from fire and earthquakes and, and wind of this nature, and surely he had the power to protect Elijah from Jezebel. Now, with that said, as for Elijah's frustrations with the Israelites, well, no one uh, by this time could possibly have been more frustrated with the Israelites than God. See, when Elijah was frustrated with the Israelites and with his people, and they're just as bad as they've always been, and you see this in Isaiah, and you see this in Jeremiah, you see this really with all the prophets, when they're frustrated that God's people aren't getting it, God... God's borne all their sins and transgressions. He, you know, he watched as he did all these great things on Sinai. He watched as the people immediately responded by building a gold cow to worship. God knew what it was like to look at the people and say, what are you doing? God knew the heart of Elijah because God had experienced Elijah's frustration over the, the silliness of sinners. But fortunately for those sinners... Fortunately for those who made gold cows, fortunately for Elijah when he's under a tree, fortunately for you and I here this morning, God is slow to anger and he's abundant in mercy. And when we have doubts and frustrations and anxieties, when we turn uh, to the left or to the right, God does not abandon his children, even to our own choices. Still, small voice. He called Elijah to himself. He taught Elijah something about himself. And a still, small voice is doing that to you and I this day. Have you heard the still, small voice of God and in the middle of storms? Storms that occupy your life. The same God who, who forms and shapes mountains also soothes heartstrings. Even in the midst of, of a raging world, His tender voice pierces the darkness and calms our greatest fears. So we can take that next step. So we can get out from under the tree. Today you may be sitting in quite a mess. Today you may be feeling alone. Today there may be all manner of storms or earthquakes or fires going on around you. All manner of storms and fires and earthquakes that seem to be blanketing your day-to-day -day life. With that said, the same God who brought wind and earthquakes and fire before Elijah was so quick to contrast his power with his grace in the whisper. If you're a child of God this morning, God is whispering to you. God's telling you that he loves you, no matter how far you've run. No matter how far you've run. No matter how far you will yet run. You're not so far that the shepherd's crook and staff cannot be used to bring you back. No matter how far you've run, no matter what you've done, God is at our side forevermore. All right, let's look at our final verses, verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to him, 
Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And then you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebal-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet, I have reserved. Now, this is something that Elijah wasn't aware of. I have reserved. Elijah, you don't know this, but I have reserved seven thousand in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and his mouth has not kissed him. You're not as alone as you think you are. I've preserved a remnant for myself. Seven thousand strong. Those who have not bent the knee to Baal nor kissed his altar. Now, as we said, Elijah had been feeling isolated in his relationship with God because God didn't do what Elijah expected him to do. But what's more, he also felt isolated from the body of believers, from the body of the faithful. It was a self-made isolation. And too often we engage in that ourselves. Our verses 15 through 18, God tells Elijah that what he's believing, the presupposition he has that he's all alone is not true. In this case, there's 7,000 who had not bent the knee and worshipped Baal. Furthermore, in this text, it's an interesting uh, promise of what is yet to come. God says, you know what, Elijah? You who thought you're alone, there's a man. It's a man I've got. His name is Elisha. He's not only a great man of faith, but as Elijah is going to find out, he would be a man that would be worthy to succeed Elijah, that would be worthy to be discipled by Elijah. Elijah thought he was alone. God had a plan. And in Elijah's uh, isolation, uh, God would, would send him to the man who would be his companion, who would be his friend, who would be his, his disciple, and ultimately who would be his successor. Now, when Elijah heard, when he heard God speak, surely his heart was encouraged. When you hear God speak, when you turn to his word, that should be the outcome. At times it convicts us. Yes, because we're people who need to be convicted. But it also encourages us. It encourages us to, to know that God is with us. And when we think that our story has hit its end, when we think that the final chapter has been written, it never is. When things seem to be going terribly, we can be so focused on our circumstances being as bad as they are that we forget to keep our eyes on the horizon. But God cups our chin and forces us, compels us to look upwards, to see the greater horizon, to see the greater plan that we otherwise wouldn't see. What was on Elijah's horizon and what was on Israel's horizon, for that matter, was encouraging. It was better than Elijah could see in the moment of his despair. And after hearing God's words, it appears Elijah picked himself up. It appears he went back out into ministry. It appears he did what God compelled him to do in his previous verses. And it appears, as near as we can tell, that he carried out his remaining ministry with vigor and faith. To his called home in a chariot. With our final moments this morning, I want us to think one last time of the picture of the same man who would be taken up in a chariot of fire. I want us to remember that there was a time in his life, as can be the case with us, when he felt so alone, he felt so isolated, when things weren't going his way, that he was curled up beneath a tree asking for death. If that can happen to Elijah, do not think that it can't or won't happen to us. We can all relate on some level, especially those of us who have a number of years under our belts. We can all relate to what it's been like 
to bend under the broom tree. Some of us, again, may feel like we're there this morning. But when we do feel that way, whether it's today or whether it's tomorrow, remember, we're not alone. You know, even if you don't always know what God is doing in your life, you know that he is there in your life. Elijah didn't know what God was doing every step of his life. And for that matter, he didn't know why God was doing it. But he didn't have to know what God was doing. He just needed to know that God was there, that God was with him. In your current circumstances, God may tell you, excuse me, he may not tell you the outcome of everything that's on your, uh, on your plate. He may not tell you the outcome of all those things that you're so concerned about this very day. But he will tell you that you're not alone when you face them. Do you not hear in this text a still, small voice whispering to you, in the midst of whatever you're going through. The God who has ordained your circumstances from eternity past has also ordained His presence in your life today, tomorrow, and the next. And that is a comfort. If you're under that tree, step out. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.